Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Discover More, Discover More is a show, is a show. for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Welcome back to Discover More. I am your host, Benoit Kim. This week's guest is Melanie Lockhart. Melanie is a published author, freelance financial writer, and the host of her podcast, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Through her blog and the book, Dear Debt, Melanie chronicled her journey out of $81,000 in student loan debt. She's also the co-founder of the Lola Retreat, which empowers other badass women to own their finances and mental health. Expect to learn about the intricate relationship between one's mental health and incurring debt, why debt is so normalized in the United States, the reality behind many graduate programs in the so-called prestigious universities, how codependence and addiction transcend beyond substance use, why being a people pleaser is in fact manipulative, and much, much more. Please join us in today's conversation with Melanie Lockard. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and chat about one of my favorite topics that I think is so important, especially right now, as many people find themselves in debt, also dealing with job loss, so many different financial situations that impact our mental health. Right. Yeah. And you're actually the first one that introduced me to this hidden and often invisible relationship between our mental health and wealth by being on your podcast a month ago. One of the four core tenants of your book, Dear Debt, is that your self-worth is not based on your net worth. I love the play on words, but can you elaborate mm -hmm. further? Yeah. So to talk more about this concept, let's go back about a decade ago when I was deeply depressed about my student loan debt. Basically, to make a long story short, I had borrowed $81,000 to go to NYU, my dream school, as well as get a bachelor's degree. And then I couldn't find a full-time job afterwards. I was making $10 to $12 an hour. I was on food stamps. And I thought this was not the life that I had thought I was going to have after graduating. I, you know, had big dreams of becoming a professor, but then that sort of shifted as I realized that academia was not for me. And so I owed all of the student loan debt. I couldn't find a job. And because my net worth was so much in the negative, I felt like I was in the negative. I felt like I was worthless, that, you know, I didn't have any value. And I really had to come to this realization in my debt payoff journey for myself to be motivated to pay off the debt that I actually had value aside from 
what was in my bank account aside from how much I owed. And that was one of the big kind of mini money mindset shifts that I had to actually pay off the debt. It's really almost impossible to detach and not associate our self-worth with level of productivity or the size of our bank accounts, because that's the foundation of this capitalistic America that we live in. What was that process like to first actually recognize that, oh, wow, my self-worth is so intricately connected with my negative self-worth, uh, negative net worth? Yeah, it was quite a journey. And I would say that was kind of in the middle of the debt repayment process or, or rather kind of when I knew I had a problem and I was like, I have to face this desperately. So something that I mentioned in my book, Dear Debt, is that I liken pay enough debt to the five stages of grief and I definitely had denial at first like I had a mint.com account that I completely deleted because I could not physically or emotionally stand the number that was looking back at me um, you know I was angry at my parents for not saving I was angry at the government for not offering you know affordable school I was bargaining like can I please win the lottery can you know some rich person helped me out. You know, I was going through all of the stages. And then finally, when I got to acceptance and I realized I have to pay this back myself and the only way that I'm going to feel better is to actually pay it off and get it done. You know, I had to do more than just get the money to pay back the debt. I had to have money mindset shifts to actually be ready to do that. And so I had to get rid of, you know, mindset beliefs such as, you know, oh, student loans are the good debt. While that can be kind of true in a way, that thought was not serving me to actually motivate me to pay off debt. You know, another comfortable thought was everybody has debt, which is largely true in America, sadly. Like we're a nation uh, built upon debt. And I thought, this thought is not serving me. And then, you know, being so depressed about my negative debt load, my low income, it's it's very hard to be motivated when you're that depressed, right? Anyone that's experienced situational or chemical depression knows it's very hard to get out of bed. It's very hard to motivate yourself. And so that was one of the turning point thoughts that I had to have to say, okay, I am not my net worth. My self-worth is divorced from that. I'm a valuable human being, whether I'm working or not, whether I have money or not, whether I'm in debt or not. This is something I did. I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to work to change that. And I have to start in that place that I'm valuable as I am, and I can show up to the best of my abilities. And, you know, I started my blog, Dear Debt, January 3rd, 20, January 3rd 2013, so almost 10 years ago now, and that one published blog post completely changed the trajectory of my entire life. We'll definitely talk about the blog and how that blog transformed into a book down the road for sure. So I want to table that. I want to highlight the word that you just used. Your self-worth is now divorced from your net worth. That divorce implies that you are once married. And I highlight that because it shows the progressions of our chapters in life and the progressions of our lessons. I don't have good or bad in my vocabulary in my work as a psychotherapist or in my interpersonal podcast. I never see those words. And if anyone picks up those words, call me out. I say that because does it serve you or does it not serve you? Maybe when you're in college or when you were more cognitively immature growing up, maybe you needed that extra oomph. You needed that motivation of 
wow, if I have a certain level of net worth, maybe X, Y, and Z. And of course, it's a fine line because it could be I'll be happy when syndrome. I'll be happy if I get a job, get a promotion, and that's not sustainable. At the same time, there is a time and place for that because motivation is a tricky thing. At the same time, you can grow out of it. So I just want to highlight that. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts there because I don't believe in anything that's all good or all bad. It's just about nonlinear progression because life isn't linear by any means. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because, you know, for a long, long, long time, I thought going to grad school was the worst mistake of my life. You know, I had quit a nonprofit job in LA to move across the country to New York and get into all this debt. And then I was worse off financially than I was, you know, when I entered. And so I, I was kind of stuck in this loop of this is the worst mistake of my life. This is the worst mistake of my life. I can't believe I did this. How did this happen? I'm such an idiot, you know, kind of the negative self-talk, the spiraling. And, you know, I finally had to get to a place where I was like, there aren't necessarily good things or bad things that happen. Obviously, we want to perceive them that way. There are just things that happen, and we have opinions about them, and you know, we have reactions to them, and maybe they're not what we would have liked. And it's our job to be able to navigate that. Like, how can I deal with this difficulty? This is not what I wanted, but how can I navigate the circumstances that were dealt with me? And the thing is, every choice has a consequence. Obviously, I believe that going to grad school was going to immediately put me in a different stratosphere, higher class, higher income. I graduated in 2011, you know, a few years after the Great Recession, so it wasn't the best time for jobs, especially in the nonprofit world and the arts. And so, you know, things didn't work out in my favor, but I was able to change that eventually. And so I think kind of getting rid of that idea of good or bad and just saying there are things that happen or don't happen and it's up to me to figure out how to move forward in the best of my abilities. I love that because there's an adage in the military called embrace the suck, right? I, I highlight that because nothing in life is inherently stressful. I, I'm very rebellious and I'm, I'm a very articulate speaker, so I'll get into arguments with my drill sergeants or commander in the military often. So I would get sent to clean the kitchen or toilet or all these duties because as punishment, I definitely deserved a lot of that. And I remember my friend, Nork, he reminded me that from the outside, cleaning the toilets or kitchen, like scrubbing the floors and washing dishes for hundreds and hundreds of soldiers sounds shitty and stressful. But if you really think about it, you're just cleaning up the things you left so that it's clean again. When you clean the toilet, you get to use a cleaned toilet after the fact. So they are not really stressful, but it's all responses to these tasks that's inherently, not inherently, but self-inflicted stress. But I, I got to ask, Melanie, that earlier you talked about you realize being an academic or a professor mm -hmm. is no longer the pathway that was maybe compatible or realistic for you. Uh, I want to tie that into this questions and would love for you to take it. What is your view on higher education after this interesting journey you just talked about? Because NYU is one of the best schools and it's also one of the most expensive schools led uh, with USC, University of Southern California, which is why I work as a psychotherapist. I would like for you to marry, speaking of divorce, marry those two questions and to see your thoughts on the academic profession and also education as a system overall. 
Uh, so, I mean, I'll say that when I went to NYU, I was very much drinking the Kool-Aid of academia. I wanted to get a PhD. I wanted to be a professor. And that's why I got my master's. And that's something that I don't mention as often, but I should because it's part of my story. It's not like I was just some idiot who wanted to get a master's in performance studies just because. It's no, I wanted to get a PhD in performance studies and be a professor. And then midway through my program, I realized I don't think academia is for me. And part of that was because I was working in the nonprofit sector before that, working with people on the ground, working with communities. And it was such a stark change for me to work with people on the ground, at least perceiving that I was making a difference in the community, and then talking about these very heady intellectual ideas. And I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love philosophy. I love critical theory. I love rigorous um, you know, intellectual stimulation. But I thought, how is this going to actually change someone's life? I don't know. And so I had a crisis of faith, and I realized, I don't think this is for me and I can't dedicate another five years of my life, God knows how much more debt to this. And, and one of the things that really set me off that I want to share here is a lot of my classmates had money from parents, had scholarships, had assistance. They did not worry about debt. I was very worried about debt while I was in school. And I would talk to my professors, how are people paying this back? What are they doing to pay it back? How are they making this work? No one could give me a straight answer. And that was like a big wake-up call to me. Like, no one can actually tell me how they're paying back this debt. No one's actually telling me what kind of jobs they're getting after this. Like, no one could give me a clear answer, so it felt kind of like a scam. And while I wouldn't go so far as to say higher education is completely a scam, I will say that they have taken advantage of a system that can be predatory for students. And what I mean by that is there is something called the Grad Plus Loan Program, which is catered towards graduate and professional students, and you can borrow up to the cost of attendance. So what do schools see that as? A blank check. Why do you think schools have you know, had crazy tuition increases in the past couple of years because they know that the loan system will support it. So I think that they have taken advantage of this financial system that hurts students. And I mean, who's who's to blame here? I mean, there's so many different factors. I think the schools are a large part of it because I think there should be tuition limits, especially when you see, hmm, NYU is costing 58, 60,000 a year. Is 60000 a year the average salary a graduate will make? Maybe, but not for everyone. If you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, the average income for the Americans, I think it's like around fifty to 60000 So if the average American salary is fifty to 60000 per Bureau of Labor Statistics data, and tuition for a college for one year is fifty to 60000 like, the math isn't mathing, like it's not working, like it's hurting students and then it sets up students for financial distress for so much of their lives. And Quick interruption. Um, yeah. I want to add this quick side note that let's not stop there. That's just the yeah. tuition, not even the living cost. Yes, that's a very important point. Yeah. Yeah, that's just the tuition. That's not, you know, all the living costs, food and everything. And 
One of the things that really woke me up to pay off my debt was I was at Occupy Wall Street in 2011 protesting student loans, and it was a very historic time to be in New York at that time. And I saw this 72-year-old woman who was getting her Social Security payments garnished for a defaulted student loan. And it was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know wage garnishment existed, which by the way it does. So if you're unaware, if you do not pay back your student loan, you have federal student loans, they can take your tax return, they can take um, part of your social security payments, I think it's up to 15%. I mean, there are ways to, to get that money back. So that was such a horror story for me. And I was like, I don't want to you know, be in that situation at all. I want to be safe and secure and focusing on other financial goals, you know, when I'm older. I might be wrong here, but if I recall correctly, I think student loan is the only loan in America that you cannot declare bankruptcy on. Could you fact check um, that? From what I know, you can, but it's very, very difficult, like extremely difficult. You have to basically prove that you're insolvent and that any payment you know, is going to be an extreme hardship. I do know one person that I had speak at Lola Retreat did have their student loans um, in bankruptcy, um, you know, discharged in bankruptcy, but it was a very difficult process. You have to know the right people. You have to, you know, prove the right numbers. It's possible, but very, very rare. It's so rare that people, you know, basically think it's impossible. And then even to add on to that, there's also these long series and sequences of consequences. Once you declare bankruptcy, your credit scores drops, which is the main metrics for mortgage loan payments, car pay, everything is predicated on credit score, which is founded on debt system. If you really know the financial systems, mm -hmm. but I want to make a comment about higher education. And I think this is a very timely topic because ChatGBT, the rise of language modeling AI systems, it's going to make most higher education systems obsolete, which is great because they haven't had any competition for too many years. There are monopoly play. Of course, if you talk about Phoenix University, all these actual scam for-profit universities, that's straight up a scam. Yeah, don't even bother those. But at least with actual traditional colleges, professors, universities, they are the platform where they have the highest aggregated talents, intelligence, rigor, X, Y, and Z, whatever you want to make them. But yeah, it's not really the math doesn't add up. As you said, the average American income over time. And of course, if you do like the lifetime math, it's going to sound a lot better, but lifetime is like 60 years. And a lot of people focus on that number, like a shining score, but they don't really think about wait, but what does it mean for annual? Because lifetime and annual are not the same. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to consider and taking on such a massive amount of student loan debt will affect the rest of your life. And then, yeah, if you decide not to pay it back or declare bankruptcy, I mean, there are sweeping ramifications on your credit, which, yeah, affects your ability to borrow and, you know, have financial access to other tools. That leads me to the next question, because to me, Melanie, mental health means the really important truth that you're not alone. Because when you're facing certain dark chapters of life, because life ebbs and flows, we often feel like nobody is cheering us on. Our pain is unique to our own. So there's not even point to talking about our suffering because people can relate. So what's the point to that? Of course, it's not true because perceived reality is not reality. 
Another thing that you talk about on your website in your book is you are not alone. You're not alone. I love to play on words again. Uh, but the language is important because it is the main paintbrush that we have to describe our reality, internal and external. And this reminds me of the narrative therapy where we talk about clients is never the problem. The problem is the problem. Any thoughts there? I love that. And I think that's so important to, you know, realize that the problem is outside of you and, you know, you aren't necessarily the problem. I remember when I was doing therapy, you know, very intensively, you know, and I would say like, I'm so anxious. I'm so depressed. My therapist would say, why don't you say I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling anxious? So it's about an external feeling. It's not I am this identity. And I think to your point, that's kind of like separating your identity and the problem. And, you know, talking about you are not alone. You are not alone. You know, I came up with that because I felt so alone being in so much student loan debt. None of my friends were talking about it. And it's when I started my blog that so many people came forward saying, I feel the same way. I'm dealing with the same situation. I have a lot more debt than you, um, you know, and I realized there's this whole community out there. And, and mind you, this is 2013. So I feel like I was ahead of the curve on the student loan bubble. I mean, I feel like just in the past couple of years, it's, you know, hit its apex of people being like, whoa, this is really out of control, guys. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I, you know, started the blog to connect with other people and, and share my story and it brought other people to me and I think sometimes it takes that one step of being vulnerable to share your story for other people to feel comfortable to share theirs and you just realize how you truly don't know what other people are going through and sometimes a little act of bravery can bring the right people your way and you are absolutely not alone you just probably haven't heard it. Yeah, I had my therapy session on Tuesday with the, a male uh, therapist and I'm going through some deeply, deeply repressed memories and issues that even exceeded my highly cultivated self-awareness and pretty much every trauma shadow work you can imagine. And I came into thinking that, ah, sure, he's uh, Asian American as well. He can maybe relate, but probably not. And after the session, I realized, oh, he understands me. And just that a feeling of being seen by another human being that's makeup that's made out of the same genetic makeups as we do that are born the same way and we're all going to die the same way. Even that alone without any other interventions or any other therapy content, I walked away feeling good. So I just want to echo that message that nobody walks this path of life alone. That's just not possible. Even if you live on an island, there's villages on the island. And even the introverts who are very homebodied, there are still social outlets like gaming, online communities. And I don't know anyone that's truly antisocial, aside from folks with like actual clinical antisocial tendencies, of course. But I, I just wanted to echo down on a messaging board. I love that. And I'm such a fan of therapy and think it's so beautiful to be seen and heard by another person that can reflect back to you in a different way and help you see things differently. So on that note, I want to add one more quick side note. I interviewed uh, David Rudd. He's the former president of University of Memphis, a tenured professor, a distinguished academic, uh, one of the top psychologists in the country. And he was the president for 10 plus years. So I asked him, what is the reality behind skyrocketing tuition costs? 
because you did talk about you are ahead of the curve in terms of student loan, and you had the opportunity through pain, through $81,000 of student loan to unveil the curtain, so to speak. He told me straight up, because he didn't expect for me to ask that question, and he told me straight up, and that blew my mind. He said, you're right. Uh, most of the college tuition costs are not even related to faculty payout or the actual educational content or container. It's mostly because of the peripheral cost of student athletics and college sports programs. That blows my mind because most D1 college students get full rise scholarships. And of course they earn that stripe because it's tremendous hard work. And of course, recently the college athletes are getting paid a little bit more than before. So that's great. But what does that say when the majority of tuition cost under this umbrella of higher education is not educational, but sports? That doesn't make any sense. And he said, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And he, he's the president of a large university. So I just wanted to add that to the discussion because I think it's an important thing that people need to realize because it is a great investment. And it's not just a piece of paper. And it does teach you about the rigor, teach you about way of thinking, networking, socializations. And college is such a bubble that it's probably the only time in your life, in your adulthood, where it's not transactional and it's not really based on networking because everyone's broke. There's nothing you can do for each other. <laughs> but I, I felt called to share that as well. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it makes you question, oh, where, where do our values lie here? It's, it's a systematic changes come slowly, but I'm, I'm saying that in, uh, partially for myself because I'm very cynical from my policymaking background. Um, so what is the process behind turning a blog into a book? Because I know there's so much depth and complexity behind book publication. Yeah, so I have a unique story that um, probably a lot of people can't relate to because it was very weird. So, you know, I had been publishing my blog for, I think, two or three years at this point. And um, I had won this very niche award called a Plutus Award. And I had won Best Step Blog. And a publisher had reached out to me the next day saying, we saw that you won Best Step Blog. Would you be interested in turning your blog into a book? And I was like, is this for real? Like, <laughs> like what? It was just so weird and so fast after winning this award that only people in finance know about. And after talking, I realized it was a legitimate offer. And, you know, I agreed to turn my blog into a book. And so at that point, it's like, what parts of the blog do I want to actually put into the book? What else do I want to add to it? It, it ended up being perfect timing because by, you know, the end of the book, in my actual life, I was paying off my debt. And so I was able to write that final chapter of like, I just paid off my debt. I remember seeing that balance at zero and screaming and crying in the living room and dancing and feeling like all of my hard work had finally paid off. And so, you know, I was able to really, uh, you know, focus on putting what part of the blog's do I want in the book and then fleshing the other parts out with my personal story that, you know, hadn't really made it to the blog. And then of course having that finale of I've actually paid off my debt. And so, you know, it's, it was definitely a unique, interesting way to write a book. Um, I definitely think self-publishing is a wonderful route as well. I think you could probably make more money to be honest with self-publishing, um, depending on, you know, many, many factors. 
but yeah, it was an interesting time to write that book. I asked that question because most people I've had on the show, despite what they do, chapters of life they're in, X, Y, and Z, during some of the lowest moments in their lives, during some of the most challenging chapters of their lives, there is some sort of a divine or cosmic affirmations affirming them that, hey, you're on the right path, keep doing. And I say this ubiquitously, every single person has had this. I've had this many folds. And I assumed you had some sort of these moments and it sounds like, sure, you can come up with dumb luck, but a lot of people say luck is a residue of design. So was it one of those affirmative moments for you? And can you recall any other, this divine, divine moments is telling that millennia, this may sound crazy. No one's talking about student loan debt, but keep doing, keep doing, keep going. Yeah, I definitely feel like, you know, getting that email the day after winning an award in your niche, like was definitely kind of like this divine cosmic timing of like, here's your opportunity in front of your face. And you're like, whoa, like all of my hard work has paid off in this moment. Um, and something that I think definitely was another cosmic moment of just you know, luck and being in the right place at the right time, which also very much related to me paying off my debt that I want to talk about is so when I started my blog, I was making 10 to $12 an hour, not a lot of money. I eventually two years after graduation found an events and communications coordinator job making $31,000 in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, you know, while I was blogging, I realized that many of my blogger friends were freelance writing for other blogs. And I was like, well, I have a master's degree. I can write. Uh, maybe I could do that because I was doing so many different side hustles around Portland. I was being an event assistant, a coat checker, brand ambassador, pet sitter, so many different things. And I was like, it would be nice to just work from home and not, you know, do all these random gigs. And so I started freelance writing. I had like one client and then... I was friends with a full-time freelance writer who ended up getting a job at a financial website and she was like, I can't freelance anymore because I'm taking on this full-time job for this financial site. Do you want me to refer my clients to you? And I was like, absolutely. And so I went from one client to four overnight because of her referral. And that is what helped me become full-time self-employed. So basically I quit a nonprofit job making $31,000 that I so desperately wanted to become self-employed. My parents were freaking out like, you've been looking for a full-time job for two years. What are you doing? And I was like, I really think I can make more money. And sure enough, I did. I made 60,000 that first year of self-employment. And my rent in Portland, Oregon, my half was like around $400. I was living in a studio apartment with my ex-partner. So imagine paying $400 in rent. I didn't have a car. My expenses were very bare bones and I went from 30,000 to 60,000. That was one of the key ways I was able to pay back my debt. You know, when people are like, how did you pay off your debt, Melanie? How did you pay off your debt? I'm like, I increased my income. <laughs> like that was the main thing for me. I know for a lot of people who, you know, if they're in credit card debt and spending is their problem, that might be a different thing. But for me, income was my problem. Spending has never been an issue for me. You know, I only had student loan decks. I thought it was an investment. I've never had a problem with spending. I'm, I consider myself a minimalist. And so I had an income problem. And I tell all people who are in debt wanting to pay back the debt to understand the underlying cause of your debt. Is it an income problem? 
Is it a spending problem? Is it a money mindset problem? Is it a psychological problem, meaning like I have a compulsive shopping addiction that I can't control because I'm trying to fill a void for some childhood issues that, you know, I need deep therapy for. And I, I know that sounds funny, but I mean, these are things that happen, right? These are ways that we cope with money, with retail therapy. And so it's really important to look at the underlying cause of the debt so that you can find the appropriate solution. And for me, it was like, I just need to make more money. And once I did, I was able to pay off all of my debt. And so, you know, I definitely feel like that was one of the divine moments where my friend was just like, here's three clients without you trying. And then I doubled my income through self-employment. To be fair, you did try because you are already writing as a writer to begin with that you went through the fuckery yeah. of NYU masters, yeah. all that. And the core ethos of what you just said comes down to there is a limit to how much you can save, but there's not a limit to how much you can earn. And that's Absolutely. something I learned from Sam and Rathi's book. I know that you read how to be rich mm-hmm. just for the listeners. That book sounds extremely scammy, like Tim Ferriss's mm-hmm. book, four hour work week. But it's a tremendous practical wisdom and he is a financial expert every sense of that word and another book i know we also both read from our last interview is the psychology of money uh, by morgan i forgot his last name Housley. house right and two books basically comes down to what is the psychological underlying that influences and often dictates the way you perceive money and how you spend money so i just wanted to share some resources on the spot and I have to ask, and this is a personal curiosity, when you came across that point of seeing your balance sheets in your bank account as zero, which I'm sure it was exciting moments, at the same time, that's something you've worked towards for so long. Did you deal with any withdrawal or emptiness feeling? Speaking of I'll be happy when syndrome, and I'm sure you're intentional, you're very mindful. But as you can imagine, anytime we hit a monumental milestone, which this was for you, we often deal with this ecstatic feeling of dopamine peak. And after the peak comes the withdrawal. So I want to share two experiences that I think are kind of similar to what you're talking about. And they didn't happen when my, you know, debt was at zero. I did cherish that moment, you know, so much. So I would say the, the the first moment happened, I would say maybe three months before I paid off my debt. And I had this very intense moment of like, I've been in student loan debt since I was 17 years old, my whole entire adult life. I've created this blog based on paying off my debt. I don't know who I am without my student loan debt. And so I got scared, even though I wanted to pay it off so badly and I wanted it gone. About three months before, I was like, who am I without student loan debt? Like, I literally don't know what it's like to be an adult making money and not making a payment towards my student loans. I got scared, and obviously by that point, I'd create a a career and a blog based on this, and, you know, that has shifted because I wasn't a debt person afterwards. And then the second moment came, I would say probably six months after paying off my debt. So six months after paying off my debt, I had moved to Los Angeles, which was on my debt-free dream list. So one of the things that I had kept myself motivated by was like, what are the things I want to do when I pay off my debt? I had wanted to move back to LA so badly because I did not like Portland (laughs) uh, for many different reasons. But I was like, it's affordable here. Let me just pay off my debt and then I can 
move. And so, you know, being on my debt-free dream list was move back to LA. And so six months after paying off my debt, I moved back to LA. It was my first full year of self-employment. I did not realize that my income had gone an extra tax bracket. And so my accountant was like, you know, a bunch, you owe a bunch of money and it wiped out my emergency fund. And so basically I was back to like zero, zero, zero in like all of my savings accounts. And yes, I was debt free, but I was like, oh my gosh, like not only do I not have debt, but I don't have any savings. I don't have any net worth. I don't have any investments. And like, I realized that I thought I have to pay off debt first before I invest, which I think was a mistake. And it felt very low to be like, oh, I'm at zero. And then like, oh, I'm at zero. <laughs> like zero is very positive when you've been in the negative for so long. But then <laughs> when you're like, I have no assets to my name. Oh, wow. And I'm 31 at the time. And then you realize how behind you are, right? And so, like I said, I feel like those moments came three months before paying off debt and six months after where I was like, oh, this is a different situation now and this is hard. It's not commonly talked about because like the 4% rule, uh, retirement fund, index funds, Vanguard, all these things school doesn't really teach you. I've, I had a dual degree in college in international relations economics. And I learned about behavior economics. I learned about financial modeling. I learned about how insurances create their premiums. But I learned nothing about the 4% rule. I learned nothing about the index fund. I learned nothing about retirement fund or 401k is the only time where Big Brother is generous towards you by do making tax exempt. And I often tell a lot of people who lack that financial literacy, not because they're stupid, but because of lack of exposure, because that's what that is that always try your best to max out your 401k. That's free money. But because the tax system is so complex, millions of Americans leave out free money. And trust me, there is no free lunch except 401k. That extra match benefit is truly free and you have to utilize it if you're listening. Uh, but with that being said, I wanna zoom in on, you talked about Portland and you didn't like Portland for different reasons. And I know for our offline conversations and my research that you are deeply into this very, very traumatic and hurtful codependent toxic relationship with your uh, ex-partner that you briefly alluded to in the beginning of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I want to start here and then feel free to take where you may. What yeah. does codependence mean to you? because it's a very, very diluted term that a lot of people use it loosely nowadays. Yeah, so I just wanna say, I'm not sure if the relationship was codependent always or if it eventually just turned into that towards the end. But when I think of the word codependent, I think of two people that are so enmeshed and enabling each other's dysfunction, they cannot separate their identities to be on their own and to be fair I did not realize that it was a codependent relationship until after we broke up I had made the move to say this is no longer working like we're arguing all the time nothing's changing we tried couples counseling um, I had set certain parameters that you know never happened and so it's like okay 
nothing's changing and this isn't working. And so I, I need to leave. And so I did. And this was after you know, nine years together. And so, you know, nine years is like a marriage, basically. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do was to leave that relationship. This was after we had moved back to LA together and to be like, um, can you, can you move out please? <laughs> like, um, you know, that, that's not a fun conversation. Um, but I realized afterwards when I was in that deep grief feeling like, why do I feel like I'm having addiction withdrawals? Like I was like, I've never done heroin, but I feel <laughs> like I'm ha having like withdrawals. Like I have done heroin. Like I feel like crazy I feel itchy I feel like I can't function I can't like I was having literal actual withdrawals from this person and then I discovered this book called codependent no more and codependent no more they said the root of codependency the original term for codependence used to be co-addicts so people who were in relationships with alcoholics drug addicts they were the ones kind of enabling their behavior and going along with it and they weren't necessarily addicted to a substance, they were addicted to that person. And so that book really was like, you're reading a book and you're like, that is everything that I'm going through right now. And so I just realized that I had enabled him financially in some ways. Towards the end of our relationship, I was paying for a lot of the bills, um, which you know we knew was going to be a thing once we moved from Portland to LA because I was the one with the flexible work. But then it gets to a point like he keeps quitting jobs and it's like, why are you doing that? Like, I didn't ask you to quit the jobs. Oh, well, I want to. And it's like, well, who's going to pay the rent then? That's going to be me. And so it was creating a lot of tension. It was also very triggering for me for a lot of different reasons, given my family dynamic about like, supporting another human being and I had realized that I had almost recreated some of the same family dynamics that I grew up with and I was like oh my gosh this is very prevalent in um, relationship dynamics when you're not so evolved where you recreate some of the same dynamics you saw growing up hoping for a different outcome <laughs> but guess what you're just going to recreate the trauma again. So I'm so glad I was able to get out of that relationship, realize that it was codependent towards the end, realizing that we were both enabling each other. I was enabling him financially. He was enabling me emotionally. Um, I did not know who I was without him. I did not know how to exist as a person without him. I, I feel embarrassed sharing this, but I want people to know because, you know, we think about these addictions like alcoholism, drug addiction, you know, what have you, but people don't talk about what it's like to be addicted to another person, to be codependent, to feel like you don't know who you are when that relationship ends. And then when you realize the level of dysfunction, because oftentimes if, if you're familiar with dysfunction and then you're in dysfunction, it seems normal to you. <laughs> it's not until you get out of that situation where you're like, wait, it can be different, and then you realize how bad it is, right? And so it was one of those situations where it wasn't until I got out and I started healing, I started dating again, I'm in a new relationship that is much healthier, and I'm like, wow, this is, you know, the opposite of everything I experienced. And, but I had to go through that experience before to be able to be in a healthy relationship because 
It's like, imagine with your childhood trauma, your relationship from your family, you're kind of set on this record groove, right? I was just on the record groove that like was set for me. And it wasn't until I kind of had to have that self-awareness of like, this is toxic. We're both drinking a lot. We're angry. We're enabling each other in different ways. Like we're starting to use things against each other in fights, which is like not cute or pretty. Like when it gets to that level, it's like, you guys should just leave. You know, I gave him an ultimatum. Also, if you have to have an ultimatum for your partner, just save your dignity and just leave. <laughs> like, you know, relationships should never get down to an ultimatum because pro tip, you can never force anyone to do anything. And so if they're not going to do it, then, you know, save your dignity and just say, you know, this is not going to change and I need to move on. And it's, it's very hard to start over at that point. I was 32 after being in a relationship for nine years, and it's terrifying to start over in your 30s, um, single again. I had never used dating apps before. Um, you know, it, it was terrifying and awful, um, but it was part of the journey. And I know that many, 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 I'm uh, 38 now, and many people in my age group over the past few years have gotten divorced. And while I'm not happy to see it, it's like, Sadly, in your 30s and 40s is a time where a lot of people who might have gotten together in their 20s start to break up because people change so much over a 10-year period, 5-year period that your 20s and your 30s are completely different. And so, you know, you see these kind of ruptures in relationships. And then I personally think, I mean, I don't have the data on it, I think a lot of our kind of primary relationships that are our first important relationships some of them are just recreating those dynamics that we know and it feels comfortable, but we don't realize that, oh, this isn't exactly healthy until we start to heal. I appreciate you sharing that because I just had a very similar conversation yesterday and I want to unpack because there's a lot there you shared. As of now, I want to talk about the divorce rate and people reinventing themselves because change is always hard. At the same time, we can reinvent ourselves because we are the authors of our lives and about each other pun intended so if you look at the statistics right now the current divorce rate on the surface is 50 percent give or take but if you look at the lifetime divorce rate it's about 60 percent if you've been divorced once the likelihood of divorcing goes up to 75 percent because you know oh cool i've gone through this didn't work out i had a way out so why not take another way out it's the priming, right? And because of my Christian faith, I don't believe in divorce. I am a child of my parents who divorced, which inflicts a lot of far-reaching implications and trauma for children. And divorce is one of the most difficult things for kids who turn into adults to move through because it comes down to attachment style and attachment theory, which is one of my expertise. I share that because although, as you said, Melanie, I'm not happy about the prevalence of alarmingly high divorce rate in America. At the same time, it's a factual data set to suggest that people are starting over all the time. And I think there is hope there because, yeah, change is hard, but it can happen. But uh, another caveat, though, is for women, the biological clock, the urgency that men don't have which creates another layers of complexities and difficulty for women. And I'm sure you felt very similarly when you went through that. 
but yeah, I just want to highlight that because you almost have to get stuck to know how to get unstuck because I don't have savior complex. I tell my clients and patients, I'm not here to fix you because you're the experts of your own life. I'm the experts of my modality and my subject matter, but you know your life way better than I will ever know. Uh, so I'm just here to hopefully be a navigator, a systems of navigation to help you self-explore and to teach you, hopefully, based on evidence-based practices that help allow you to go from a place of stuckness to unstuck. But you have to get stuck first to know how to get unstuck after the fact. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned, um, you know, your kind of modality as a therapist, because I'll tell you, I was so codependent. I was like, therapist, tell me what to do. And she was like, I can't. And I was like, no, please, just can you just tell me what to do? And she was like, I can't. And I was like, wait, I have to figure this out alone. Like I have to sit with all these feelings and figure out what to do. And also just quickly, I know you mentioned that the divorce rates around 50%. I just want to say, since we are talking about money and mental health, I have a theory that if money and health insurance were not part of the marriage equation, divorces would be much higher. I personally think it'd be like probably 75% because I know a lot of people stay married because of the money, because of the health insurance. Just wanted to throw that out there. I mean, obviously, you know, partnerships dissolving, divorcing, it's very traumatic. It's very upsetting, but people do start over all the time. And that period of rediscovery can be so rich and that's what you get because you decided that this is no longer working and I need to take care of myself first. I agree with that. And of course, all that comes down to fear, fear of going back out there, fear of potential future rejections, fear of meeting people for the first time, fear of losing familiarity, which is what that comfort is, right? Being with someone for nine years, you don't have to try, right? You already know about all the skeletons, the darkest darkest secrets about each other. And I want to tie this into your previous response about the codependent element and the addiction like withdrawal that you went through, because it was sounds like it does check the withdrawal symptoms, at least from this conversations where there is a lot of research suggesting that a lot of uh, people, individuals dealing with addictions, math, heroin, narcotics, X, Y, and Z. Yes, the substance is highly addictive. But a lot of that is the ritual, like the ritual associated with, right? A lot of studies shows that the highest peak of dopamine release that a lot of these addiction um, patients experience is actually not the actual consumptions of meth and heroin. It's actually right before they're about to intake by, you know, melting on the spoons or whatever rituals they partake in. Their brain's like, here we go. We're about to enter this bliss point. That's the same way for people addiction because think about this when you got out of this nine year relationship that wasn't always codependent but had a lot of codependent tendency until the end you're not just losing that person you're losing your coping skills you're losing your way of coping and that is detrimental and that's what crisis is crisis simply means you're facing a new situation and challenge that made your cultivated coping skills and mechanisms obsolete. What you worked on is no longer working. Crisis is a skill set problem. It's not about you being competent or incompetent. And I want to highlight that because, as you said, and I appreciate you sharing, 
because not a lot of people associate codependencies and addictions with people. But that is huge because we're social animals by default. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, like I said, I realized it was codependent after the fact because I could not self-soothe. I could not calm myself down. I had a very hard time being no contact with him. And, you know, I'll admit that was part of my toxic trait where he was like, you broke up with me. I can't be your emotional support human anymore. Like, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. And that was my part of the problem. Like I said, I enabled him financially. He enabled me emotionally. And so I outsourced taking care of my feelings and my emotions to him. I did not know how to take care of myself emotionally. And the only other coping skill I had at that time was drinking. <laughs> and so, like, I literally did not have any coping skills at that time. And, you know, went through such a journey with all of that. Do you ever feel like you're going through the motions and that your major life choices are simply subscribing to the status quo? And do you ever wonder if your general opinions and viewpoints of the world are overly influenced by society at large? I want to tell you about a podcast called Preconceived that helps you navigate such questions. Each episode challenges a different preconception, featuring experts and luminaries in their respective fields. I think you'll especially enjoy recent episodes on polyamory, regretting parenthood, dopamine nation, and myth of the beauty industry. Find Preconceived wherever you get your dosage of podcasts now. Yeah, one of the first opening thing I tell my, because a lot of my clients at USC are first-time health speakers and first-time therapy seekers, that is a deep, profound privilege and honor to be that vanguard, to be that gatekeeper of therapy, because you might be the reason why they never seek help ever again. Conversely, you might also be the exact reason that they have faith in the scientific discipline that we call psychotherapy. And I have this empty toolbox. It's literally like um, where you put pens and pencils right in the table in between my seat and the client's seat, and it's empty. A lot of them ask me, why is it empty? Put some pens in there, tools. And I said, aha, I appreciate you bringing it up. And that's all part of the strategy, right? It's, it's a metaphor that a lot of people come into my office believing that they're entirely helpless and powerless because that's what that darkness feels like. And then I remind them, but you're, you're here, aren't you? The fact that you're here means you've endured a lot of hardships and challenges throughout your life. The fact that you're here means you have some sort of ways of coping. They may not be the healthiest, like drinking, alcohol, but sometimes that might be the one thing that keep you stay alive. That might be the one thing that allows you to seek sustainable, more balanced and adaptive skill sets. That's why, once again, it's not good or bad. I don't say, oh, you used to be drinking, you became an alcoholic as a cope. No, it's that that served you to help you move through this post-breakup period. And I'm sure you saw therapy, you did a lot of learning, you're curious, all that after the fact. So I just want to highlight that because, not, once again, nothing is all good and all bad, and I'm all about nuances on this show. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, another thing I want to zoom in and ask you about, because I think this all falls under the containers of relationship, because relationship is complex. And I love relationships because I feel like no other container reveals more about the oneself than relationship. Because relationship is a projections of 
your relationship with yourself and your primary caregivers, which is your parents. Let's talk about the parameters you alluded to briefly, because what that means is boundary setting. How was that like? I'm sure I know you talked about it wasn't as successful as you wanted to be, but I'm sure you have a lot of experiences about setting boundaries. I'm sure that pain teacher gifted you the lessons that allowed you to be better at setting boundaries down the road. But what does boundary setting mean to you and anything you want to share about boundaries with especially the people you care about? Yeah, I think, you know, what I realized from being codependent is that it was very hard for me to speak up, to be direct, to ask for what I want. And, you know, once I was able to identify the problem, I realized I do need to set boundaries because a lot of codependents have zero boundaries. They are people pleasers by nature. They want to make other people happy. They want to, you know, make sure people like them. I used to think like, what's the problem with that? But then once I was in my healing journey, I was in therapy for three and a half years every week. Um, You know, you realize it's kind of manipulative to be like, I just want everyone to like me. So I'm going to act a certain way so people like me, you know, and then you kind of realize like, oh, this is kind of gross, actually. Like, it's not it's not just like, oh, I want people to like me. It's like I'm acting a certain way to try to manipulate an outcome that feels good for me because I cannot deal with the anxiety of sitting in the potential that you don't like me. And so for me, codependence was all about how can I manipulate outcomes so that I can't sit with the scary feelings. And so, you know, once I identified the problem in the past few years when I'm in healthier relationships, I have to speak up when things are making me uncomfortable. I have to say things directly as I mean them, not like, let's say this one thing and, you know, hope it turns out into this and try to manipulate an outcome because it's like, okay, just be direct, right? Like, I think sometimes we do this unconsciously even. We say things a certain way or do things hoping that, you know, people will catch our drift, right? Like, for example, if you are cleaning the house and huffing and puffing and your partner's like, what's wrong? And you're kind of like, I'm upset because you should have done all the cleaning. Well, you could have also just said directly, hey, I feel like there's an unfair balance of the household chores right now. I'm wondering if you could pick up some of the slack and do this. So old Melanie might have done all the cleaning and huff and puffed, and hope they catch the message, right? New Melanie is like, let's directly talk about the problem. Problem is that there's an unfair balance of household chores and I would like you to help out, right? And it's more direct, it's more succinct, and we can all move on and get over it much more quickly. And, you know, so same boundaries has been a, a, a big thing in me and my direct communication, me and my healing, also, um, I've been sober for over a year now, and that's been a huge kind of need for boundaries because, you know, if if people invite me out to bars and I'm not comfortable, I have to say, hey, unfortunately, that doesn't make me comfortable at this stage in my sobriety. Like, I have to pass. And, you know, as a recovering people pleaser, that's, like, terrifying because it's like, are they going to not like me? Are they going to hate me? Are they ever going to invite me out again? I don't know. But I have to set that boundary because I know I will dislike myself more if I go to the bar 
if I feel tempted, if I feel mentally tortured, if I'm not having fun anyways, like there's so many things. So, I mean, setting boundaries is the easier route because if you don't set the boundaries, then you're dealing with resentment later on. That is great that you talked about the people pleasing tendency and how that undercurrents with a slight manipulation, it's not like the narcissistic way, but you are manipulating your personalities and the things you say to get into someone's favor and vice versa. And nobody wants to be disliked, but of course it's a trope, but I'd rather be remembered for who I am or be hated for who I am versus be liked for who I am not. And that comes down to conditioning, programming, personality, family dynamics, attachment style. It's a whole nine, so we're not gonna go too deep into it. I do wanna share this, it's kinda meta, but I think I can make this work where I read this article just last week talking about the competitive edge and the strength of a lot of individuals with autism or autistic people. And I want to context this where a lot of their perceived weakness is they can't socialize and they're socially awkward. They can't read the social cues that most humans just know innately how. The article was a ref it's so refreshing because it flipped that on its table. And it said, actually, their inability because it's not that they don't want to, they can't genetically. Their inability to understand social cues and be good at the sociality that a lot of social creatures are innately drawn to is their superpower because their lack of ability to mimic because they miss that genetic marker allows them to be hyper creative because all of their mental effort and energy goes from mimicking others and this mimic role that all social humans have into their own reality and cultivating and creating the most authentic versions of whatever they are. And ironically, this lack of ability to mimic is actually their superpower. And while a lot of the autistic folks are so creative and a lot of them are savants and prodigies of some sort, piano, painting, music, and so on, like savant syndrome is one of them. So I just want to share that because not pleasing other people, as you talked about, will have some downside and trade-offs. But I think the reward is a lot better on the other side if you choose to tackle this, what sounds simple, but not easy route. Yeah, one of the um, psychotherapists I follow on Instagram, his name is Alan Robarge. He posted something the other day that was to the gist of, you know, if you're always doing things for other people, hoping that they'll like you, you'll never know if they actually like you or if they just like you for what they can, what you think that they can do for you, right? And so it's like, yeah, you want to show up authentically to see if people actually really like you for who you are, not just what you can do for them. That, that's great. I love, like I said, what is true, it's true. doesn't matter how many ways you spin it. Um, I want to use that and highlight and zoom into your therapy experiences of 3.5 years, uh, which yeah. is amazing to hear. Um, so according to the latest survey that about 50% of Americans still view psychotherapy or help seeking as a sign of weakness to that, I, of course, I want to say courage is not absence of fear. It's in the presence of fear that makes you courageous. So seeking therapy is actually one of the most courageous things, period because you're disclosing some of your most vulnerable, intricate, sensitive details to a stranger with a professional training. You think that's weak? Go and try it. You can't? Obviously, it's not weakness. Vulnerability strength by Brene Brown, of course. 
So what are some of the biggest lessons? And this is a vast questions that you learned about either yourself or this healing psychotherapeutic process from those 3.5 years and just other things, because I love contextualizing what therapy means to the individual because they all look different. I was in therapy for 3.5 years following that breakup. Like I said, I was not okay and I was very codependent and I did not have my emotional, you know, human any longer. So I needed a therapist to actually walk (laughs) me through that because I, I, I needed someone, I needed something. And at that point, um, I was drinking a lot. I had a terrible rebound relationship that made things worse. And I'll be honest, that first year of therapy was awful. I don't remember a lot of it because a lot of it was crying. A lot of it was just surviving. And I started dating myself. I created this thing called Year of Museums where I went to a museum once a week. I only made it to about six months. But like still for six months, once a week, I went to a museum and dated myself. I started going boxing um, because I had a lot of anger to get out of my system. I wanted to become stronger physically. You know, my ex carried the cat litter and I couldn't carry the cat litter anymore. So I was like, I want to be physically stronger too. Um, So I went boxing. So my therapist was able to see me through those changes. She helped me get sober. Um, She helped me start dating again. She helped me build my self-confidence. She helped me reframe a lot of the lingering issues I had with that previous relationship. Like, I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of resentment. Obviously, I had a lot of grief. I was devastated. Um, For the first three months after the breakup, I could hardly eat, and I lost 20 pounds. Eating did not sound good to me. Also, you know, we're talking about a container, I just want to share this because this was one of my most proudest moments of therapy. There was a point where my therapist had said something that rubbed me the wrong way. It was the way she said it. And it really upset me and it hurt me. And I don't think she meant it that way, but it did. And I wanted to quit so bad. I was like, I'm not going to see you anymore. Our relationship is over with. And then I was like, well... All the stuff I've been learning in therapy is to speak up for myself, is to have direct communication. Like, if I just end this, I'm going to be back where I started. So the next week, I was like, hey, I want to talk to you about something. This is very hard for me. But last week, you had said this thing in a certain way, and it hurt my feelings. And, you know, I wanted to bring it up. And actually, she said, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I felt like I was having an off day and I was actually talking to some of my friends that I might have said the wrong thing and I'm so glad that you mentioned that here and I would like to apologize and like we had this very human interaction as therapist and patient and I was actually able to practice the schools directly you know within this container and I was like wow I got to practice the actual school the actual skills I'm learning in therapy in the therapeutic dynamic and have this very human interaction. And for a recovering people pleaser, I was like, oh my God, I spoke up directly. The world didn't end. She didn't say she hates me or didn't want me as a patient anymore. You know, everything worked out. And like, that was a great kind of muscle builder for me to be like, I can speak up when something's upsetting to me or, 
not feeling good and it doesn't mean the end of the world it doesn't mean people are going to leave me it doesn't mean you know something bad's going to happen you know so it was it was a wonderful healing experience and i don't think i would have done the healing i did without that work but it's like i invested that time like i want to just state that i've been in and out of therapy since i was 16 years old this three and a half year period was the longest period i had gone consistently and was by far the most growth I've done in my whole life. Showing up when it's easy is easy. Showing up when it's hard is hard. That's why consistency is hard because anyone can show up on their good days. But can you stick through it during the challenges in light of the tidal waves, the stormy seasons? So, and I sense a lot of the humility from your therapist as well. And sounds like it was a really, really deep therapeutic process for you and i i heard this like a meme somewhere many a long time ago that the best diet pill in this world is heartbreak (laughs) guaranteed weight loss it's terrible yeah Yeah. (laughs) but of course jokes aside as we talked about earlier you have to get stuck to learn how to get unstuck Uh, i do want to quickly talk about the idea that why it's important to like speak up and actually do the work because i think doing the work is this diluted term along with holistic health it's been entirely hijacked by all these life coaches and buzzwords and all these people of course many of them are legit but i think most are phonies i share that because the point of therapy isn't to be the best at therapy the point of therapy is to be best in life The point of meditation isn't to be good at meditation unless you're you live a hermit monk life on an isolated mountain somewhere the point of meditation is to also be better in life and a lot of people view coming to therapy once a week as like doing the work and that's part of the work but the true work comes in integrations outside the therapy and as you talked about ironically a big reason for you seeking therapy is to speak up for yourself but then you needed this synchronistic event to transpire that, wow, I could either quit this, which is avoidancy, versus actually confront the discomfort and actually speak up, which is what you've been learning about through your work with therapists. So A, I want to applaud that because that's not easy because it requires this metacognitive awareness and thinking about thinking and being able to observe about our own self as like an aerial third person view. That is hard. It takes years and years of cultivated practices, mindfulness, being present. Uh, You're an author, so I know that helps because writers are often great thinkers. So I just wanted to highlight that because, yeah, the point of therapy isn't to be a master patient and master client. It's to improve all the other aspects outside of the container. And that's why when we talk about parallel process, you performing well in my sessions means nothing to me. I'm going to see you regardless until I feel like it's like a healthy point for us to close out the relationship. Just like if you walk out on me, I'm not going to tackle you or put a gun against your head. It's, it's your body, you're autonomous of your decisions. But are you applying what you learned practically into your other domains of your life? Because who you are in therapy is not the same as who you are outside of the container. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wanted to share two points based on that. So, you know, doing the work, like 
I would say I wasn't really doing the work until that year and a half. Like I said, I was kind of just cycling through the motions, showing up to therapy, crying, grieving, completely stuck. It wasn't until I was willing and able to change did things start to actually change. And then, you know, I said I went on a man ban. Well, you know, I thought I was doing super well, super healed. Well, guess what? When I started dating again, wow, I was like, oh, this is where I have to integrate all of this work is actually in relationships because, yeah, if I'm by myself, I, I don't trigger myself. I, I can, you know, feel fine on my own now. I'm stronger. But then dating and, and experiencing, you know, what does it feel like when someone doesn't text you back? What does it feel like when someone doesn't like you? Um, what does it feel like when a date's not going well? And having to navigate all of that. And so I had to integrate all the stuff I learned in real time. And I think kind of the being alone made me feel like I was more healed than I was. And then when I started dating again, I was like, mm, okay, wasn't at all fully healed. Um, and then another point I wanted to share is like, I think doing the work is really owning your own stuff that you have to look at. And so it's very easy to go to therapy. And this is, like I said, what I did for the first year and a half, talking about the other person, how they hurt me, what they did. I can't get over it. I'm obsessively talking about what they did to me. About a year and a half in, like the second level of therapy for me was like, oh my God, why did I put up with that? Why did I enable him financially? Why did I not walk away at XYZ point before this? And then you start to think about, oh my gosh, I played a role in this. And what are the toxic things that I brought to this relationship? What are the you know parts of me that were dysfunctional and that part is like it's much easier to be like this person hurt me you know i'm crying it's much harder to look at the mirror and be like i did some things wrong and i messed up and i was a little bit toxic too and that is a hard pill to swallow but it's necessary and then i feel like you can do so much deeper healing once you can look in that mirror and say what was my part of the problem here? Because every relationship, you know, has two parties. You know, you, you bring your own stuff too. And maybe it's not as bad or good. And I know we want to say, we don't want to say good or bad. But, you know, like, we all have our own stuff. And you have to look at what part did you bring to that. And I think seeking help is hard while there's a lot more happening in the background. <laughs> seeking help is hard because to seek help, you have to first recognize that you need help. And that is the biggest barrier to seeking help, not just psychotherapy, physical therapy, medical help, X, Y, and Z, because it comes down to ego, right? So I, once again, applaud you for recognizing and grappling with, wow, I did contribute to this toxic relationship because you're right. It takes two to dance. So, and I love what you talked about. The work doesn't happen during this reflective moment. The work happens when you're going back to that trigger, when you're confronting and flirting with the same trigger that sent you to the spiraling negative space to begin with. A friend of mine, he's very stoic into stoicism, and he has this highly cultivated and impressive ability to stay calm under pressure. And like one time he went through like three or four 
really, really dramatic and tra traumatizing situations, like back to back to back to back within a week. He was scammed out of $10,000 by this really sophisticated phishing network, which wiped out half of his savings and a bunch of other things literally within the same week. And then I saw him and of course he wasn't happy. He wasn't exuding positive energy. Of course, like that shit sucks. At the same time, it didn't impact his functionality in life. He still showed up as a good friend to a good boyfriend, good son, X, Y, and Z. And I asked him, what's your secret? I will never forget what he said. And I want to share this now. He said, what is the point of doing work? You're doing work so that you have opportunities and circumstances to test out the outcome and the results of the work you've done. And I was like, damn, that is great. What is the point of meditating every single day for 20 minutes for four years, seeking therapy for three and a half years, reading every self-help books out there, if you're not going to have opportunities to test out the preparations you put in, I think that is such a powerful lesson that you're not doing the work to be the masters of work, not to brag to other people. Oh, look at how much work I've done. Look at how much investment I've done. No, you're doing it so you can show up the way you're proud of when you're facing same, if not more difficult situations, because life is it's a total mindfuck absolutely yeah and those tests will come i will tell you and you'll be like well, okay this is the test now 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 i need to get my a game here and and get all the tools that i learned yeah so i just want to <laughs> it's such a great story we're definitely towards the end of the conversation millennia i want to conclude today's interview and conversation with one last question because you did talk about your sobriety which is a little bit more than a year now a year and a half mm -hmm close to a little a year and a couple of months I, I did like another six month bout a little bit before that um and then moderated for a while and then committed again we'll, we'll round it up to a year and a half yeah <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 30 so i just tell people i'm 30 yeah what is the biggest difference from a this self-reflective point of view which is i think a core tenets of today's conversations what is the biggest difference that you see from this pre-sobriety millennia and the post-sobriety millennia? Well, I will say that post-sobriety Melanie is a lot less emotionally volatile. And I would say that my emotions stick within a range. You know, let's say emotions can go from zero to a hundred. I would say my emotions stay between 30 and 60 now. Whereas before they would just go from zero and a hundred and everywhere in between all the time, you know, very erratic. Um, Pre-sobriety, I would get myself into situations where I would drink too much. I would cause myself a lot of shame. I would cause myself a lot of guilt, embarrassment, wondering what I did, what I said, being paranoid. And it's like I was creating a lot of drama that was so unnecessary. So my life is so much drama-free now that I'm sober. Like, I don't have to worry about what did I say? I don't have to worry about what I did. I can wake up on a Saturday morning and do a podcast and not be like, do I look hungover? Am I hungover? You know, do I feel bad? You know, I don't have to worry about that stuff. And it's been such a huge difference. But I would say like the main thing I want to share with people, because this was a huge lesson for me, is like I thought that drinking was my problem. I was like, once I get my drinking under control, like everything will be better, I'll be fine. No, 
Once I stopped drinking, all of the underlying issues, the reasons I drank to begin with, started popping up. All the emotional receipts were like, it was like I had put, you know, an emotional credit card for the past 15 years. And then suddenly it was like, oh, you stopped drinking, the bills due right now in full. And I was like, so I went through a lot of emotions where I was like, oh, drinking wasn't the problem. Drinking was the solution to my problem. And it was all these other things underneath that caused me to drink so heavily. It, it was a lot. <laughs> I love interviewing podcasters because this is a creative element where I love you tying the re emotional receipts. I love the language there. And the credit card is due which is tying into the debt, which is the beginning of conversation as a full circle. And almost always addictions and behaviors are manifestations of deeper root cause. They are seldomly ever the problem. They're just a bandaid. So of course, when you rip that bandaid off, the scar is still there if you didn't address Ooh. it. Yeah. So you have to deal with all of that then. And that's a lot of work. It is. Yeah, healing isn't pleasant. That's what a lot of people don't understand. Like deep healing sounds cool. The shadow self sounds cool, like the Jungian. But when you actually confront that shadow self, you sit across from him or her, let me know how it goes because it's not pleasant. But it's if you- painful and exhausting. <laughs> and more. But if you stick through it, there is magic that awaits on the other side which is I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about mental health and all things esoteric and trying to tie that into the under the umbrella of mental health. Because mental health to me, it's not just this category, but it's what allows you the foundation to navigate life in a way that you're proud of. And spirituality falls under mental health for me. Physical health, of course, is mental health and everything in between. But yeah, I think that's just a perfect, very cohesive, and a harmonic way to close out today's conversations. And like I said, I appreciate your wealth of knowledge and finances, mental health. I appreciate your willingness to share some of the air quote embarrassing things that you talked about earlier, because I do think that these are important conversations to be had. And stories are not just stories. I know that even podcasting is getting diluted by the capitalistic vehicle of America where now stories are content. I want to remind everyone that stories are reflections of visceral personal experiences that we've gone through and they become memories and those memories stick with us for a long time and we feel called to share these through the avenue of podcasting but these are real lived experiences not just scripted bs we read it somewhere because all my episodes are unscripted with that being said this is where i roll out the red carpet for you Melanie. Where can people check out your podcast? Uh, I know you're not as active on blogging because you do a lot of freelance creative work and whatever else you want to share. Yeah, definitely check out my podcast, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. You can check out previous blog entries at Dear Debt and also check out my shop there. You can find my book, Dear Debt, on Amazon and other bookstores. And I'm on social media at Melanie Lockhart, most active on Twitter and Instagram. And before we close out today's conversation, Melanie, is there any parting central message you want to instill with the listeners uh, before we close this out? I would say my biggest message is to take care of yourself and do what feels good, even if it's hard. Thank you. To all the listeners, if you have made it to this end, as always, I tremendously appreciate your time. I know that the attention 
is the biggest commodity nowadays and all of us are busy in our own ways if you take in anything if you discover more something about from today's insightful and wide-ranging conversations i ask you to share this episode with one person one friend and that's how you inspire me to grow my show to continue to seek out fascinating and amazing genuine people like Melanie today but as always, I will include all the show notes in the episode description so you can check out Melanie and all the amazing work that she's doing. And as always, I appreciate your time, your patience throughout this long-form conversations. And as always, I hope you answer the curiosity and see you again in next week's Train Up Discover More. Thank you for listening.